On the show today, Rich and I are joined by Chef Andrew Gruel to talk about how the restaurant industry has weathered COVID-19, cooking pancakes in cast iron, and why pineapple does not belong on pizza. I'm your host, Brad Jackson, and you're listening to the January 17th, 2022 edition of Coffee and Cochon. Joining us now on Coffee and Cochon, Chef Andrew Gruel. Chef, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you here. An honor to be here. Thank you. So I wanted to start by asking you, you have restaurants all across the country, um, and we are facing a unique time right now. Everyone who's listening is, has been going through several really rough years. Um, we have uh, supply chain issues. We have uh, different parts of the country are are experiencing different lockdown rules at certain times and everything. How have you weathered that in your uh, restaurants? Because I, I imagine it's unique per uh, city that you're located in, and and you're in California, which is a, a place that has been beat up for this quite a bit. How, how have you weathered COVID-19 in your restaurants? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I probably need more than an hour to answer that, um, but I'll try and be as succinct as possible. It's different, right? It is. It's different in every region, and it's different per market, different in each, depending on the demographic in regards to also how new the store is, how much built-in loyalty there's been, how we can communicate with our audience. Communication has been key for, I think, not just businesses, as we've seen across even right governments and non-government agencies across this pandemic, getting messages out and the ability to get the right message out. And the same applies for business as well. And there's so much noise right now that previously we were kind of competing with um, other businesses to really herald our message, but now we're competing with all social platforms and information outlets because people are glued to headlines and we're up against a lot of misinformation and fear. So that affects our business so much. It's had to completely the switch as to how we market the business. Let me ask this. When you um, when you are dealing with the supply chain thing we've been seeing um, throughout uh, the country, h- how has that impacted your ability to have the supplies you need to uh, get everything ready in the store, to, whether that's uh, your pizza place or your seafood place? How, how have you weathered that? Supplies have been the biggest issue, and it's been talked about more recently, but this has been an issue for us since day one. What, you know, And I talk about the way in which supply also intersects with mandates. You know, you got to have masks. Well, masks weren't available. Right now, any masks available, as they're telling people you can't have cloth, mat, cloth masks, uh, they're, you know, $100 a case. They've gone up. A hundred percent almost, it feels, over the past year or two. And then it's, okay, well, OSHA standards, especially here in California with the Department of Labor, who's now kind of the deputized arm of the Newsom's office to go into businesses and find them and penalize them, frankly, if they speak out, us included. It's like, okay, well, someone tested positive for COVID, and now suddenly we've got to go get everybody tested, but there's no tests available. So what do we do? Shut our business down. How do we 
keep up with these rules that are just constantly changing. And that's just on two pieces of this, right? That's testing and, and masks. With uh, your focus on, you know, local ingredients and small businesses, has that helped you from a supply standpoint when it comes to, you know, the actual uh, ingredients you need to keep your restaurants running? For our primary ingredients. So being sustainably seafood focused and constantly integrating with our supply chain, using as much domestic U.S. wild or U.S. aquacultured seafood product or partners that we um, feel really comfortable with, that we know they're not kind of creating in um, sketchy manners. Typically, you create a relationship with your end user um, or at least the point of origin, and those relationships are, if they're strong relationships in business, right, this is a general principle, they're always going to supersede, you know, any quick, you know, shoots and spikes in the market. Um, that's been the case for us. So when it comes to our primary product, we've been good. When it comes to all the other stuff that it takes to operate and run a restaurant, from packaging goods to paper products to gloves, as I mentioned, masks, masks um, all your par stock items from flour to oil, you name it. And then it's all the auxiliary costs as well. So even if I can get those products and I can secure them, every single day it's a gamble whether I can get a truck out here to get me the products because of the fact that they're being hit with labor shortages, increased in all their input costs that they can't even operate and they have to marginalize or scale down their businesses. So we go from three deliveries a week to one delivery a week, which we don't have the space or the storage capacity to do that, which means then we've got to constantly go out to market and keep trying to bid on these auxiliary products that might not necessarily be our core product, but I can't just put a piece of fish on a plate, right? I've obviously got to have other things along with it especially the packaging and the to-go stuff. So what we're also seeing is that all of the larger distributors, they're using this to their advantage. There is so much price gouging going on right now, unethical price gouging, and this constant excuse due to the supply chain crisis or due to COVID. I mean, it's like you, you might as well just insert it in front of every single sentence. Chef, let me ask you this. You seem to do a fantastic job of taking pictures of your food, uh, whether that's on social media or on your websites, your food looks fantastic. And, and it's, it's like mouthwatering just looking through the pictures of the stuff you make. Um, talk to me about the fun stuff you make at Slapfish, and, um, then tell me how long until you have a restaurant here in Texas I can go to. Well, you know, it's funny. I'll <laughs> say this. It, 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 everyone always asks, they're like, is all this stuff on your menu? And, you know, this must be the world's biggest menu in the world. So we've got a bit of our, it's a really a test kitchen right here in Huntington Beach, which was our first location. And that's where I kind of develop a lot of this, a lot of these different dishes, um, cooking for the crew all the time. So I'm constantly posting real, every single picture of food I post is my own. Um, so I will say that, but I would say 50% of it is actually crew chow for the team. Uh, or just different dishes that I'm playing around with features. Now, we are going to be opening up in Houston later this year. Uh, so Houston will be our first point in Texas, and we're going to grow around the Houston market over to Dallas. So that is the immediate plan for growth. That is 100% guaranteed. We So uh, outside of that, that's all of our focus. 
Speaking of these pictures, uh, one of the things that you seem to do a lot of, which would make sense if you're serving the crew, are just fantastic-looking sandwiches. And uh, Brad and I are both of the opinion that a sandwich is one of the greatest meals you can have. Uh, No one ever says, oh, my favorite food is a sandwich, but people love sandwiches. So what goes into your creative process when you're making these excellent looking things and what would be your ideal sandwich that anyone could make? Well, the key to a good sandwich is the sauce, right? Sauce is always boss, as I've said, and it's got to go end to end. Too often people don't spread the sauce from the very, 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 very uh, end of one side of the sandwich to the other across the entire circumference. Don't leave one hole. Don't leave one part of the sandwich left out. Uh, that's the key. But sandwiches are also incredibly rich creatures by their nature, and you got to have acid in there. You've got to have vinegars or sauces that kind of cut through some of that richness. So it's really important to kind of layer the flavors from that perspective, texture and crunched. If you're going to build a big sandwich, make sure that you're layering different textures in the sandwich so that it's not just kind of bread and then that fat meat, meat bite, if you will. Uh, you know, textures are key. For me, the best sandwich ever is pretty simple. Um, you know, just maybe, maybe sourdough, fresh sliced turkey, like a, a nice roasted turkey, uh, an acidic citrus aioli, good fat tomatoes, and some fresh mozzarella. That's all I need. <laughs> Tell me about Clobster. Uh, the seafood superhero. So Clobster was created. We originally did a lobster grilled cheese on our menu, and I just felt it was too rich. It was too decadent. Kind of, you know, believe that. And I needed something else in there, and I really liked the flavor of the crab because, you know, crab is actually kind of uh, gamey, if you will, when you think about it. Some people say it tastes almost has an ammoniated flavor to it, which comes from some of the backfin meat. That's not a bad thing per se, but it's relatively gamey. It's also pretty sweet. Crab is very sweet, um, different than a lobster type of sweetness and the salinity of the crab. So I threw the crab in there to make the clobster, half crab, half lobster, and it works really well with the cheese, surprisingly. Being an Italian, uh, you know, I know that was a no-no, but did it anyway. And uh, a lot of a lot of citrus in there to kind of cut through that richness again, and a nice sourdough, and that's our clobster grilled cheese. That just sounds like the best marriage ever. You know, it works. And at, at first glance, some people have issues with it, especially those who are kind of hail from New England and are used to just the purity of a lobster roll or lobster dipped in butter or just plain. But uh, this works. Trust me. All right. Another thing that we noticed and uh, something that we're both fans of is is cast iron cooking. And you recently were uh, extolling the, the virtue of cooking your pancakes in a cast iron skillet. So take us through making the perfect pancake. Oh, oh well, I don't want to give away any specific secret recipes, but I will say this. Cast iron is essential. Um, I cook them just in straight butter because you get a little bit of the milk solids from the butter that kind of toast onto the cast cast iron skillet and give you that brown butter flavor on the pancakes. Um, I go bigger on the baking powder. I like a nice fluffier pancake, and I whip the egg pretty hard too. So, you know, basic combination, um, a little bit of flour, um, egg, milk or buttermilk, um, you can even throw a dash of yogurt in there if you want some more acidity, uh, baking powder. I do lemon zest, lemon juice, salt, sugar, vanilla. I like to use the fresh vanilla bean. Mix it up, and there you have your your pancake. You know, play with those ratios based on the consistency you like for your pancake. But that cast iron is essential because it was funny. I posted this yesterday on Twitter, and as as goes Twitter, 
you know, there's always you, you could start a war on Twitter about a subject that has no relevance to anything at all. It could just be complete non sequitur. I always make the joke. I say I posted a picture of a stick once and I said, here's a stick. And the first comment was, first of all, it's a branch. So the people will argue about anything. <laughs> people will argue about anything, especially pancakes. And, you know, one of the common complaints I got from my post yesterday was, well, who likes crispy pancakes? You know, fluffy pancakes are the way to go. And I beg to differ. You want that texture. You want a little bit of that bite on the outside that you get from the cast iron. And then that beautiful fluffiness on the inside that just kind of steams into your mouth and all the flavors start to mix around. You get the vanilla around the top, the, the, the aromas, and then, of course, the natural aeration that is created by leavening through the baking powder and the whipped egg, the richness. That's what you want with a pancake, in my opinion. Okay, I completely agree with you. Let me say, I, I also cook all my pancakes for my kids on cast iron. It's something we do just about every Saturday morning. And uh, awesome. one of the things I like to do is I cook, they always like bacon with their pancakes. I'll cook the bacon first on the cast iron and then do the the pancakes. And so they get a little bit of the salt, a little bit of the, the, um, the bacon flavor in that. And again, it gives you that crispy edge, which I wholeheartedly agree. It's more fun. It's more fun when you have that textural element to it. If you have a fluffy pancake in the middle, that's perfect. But the, the crispy edge gives you something else. It's not, it's not just all one note. Yeah, bingo, bingo. And I love that with the with the bacon fat. Definitely, that's that kind of sweet and salty, savory yeah. mix that uh, people forget about. And and I and I use the example, too, because we're obviously people are listening right now. So sometimes, you know, uh, um, this type of communication you know, is theater of the mind, if you will. But I say take, uh, you know, right now, just imagine a spoonful of mashed potatoes, right? Put it in your mouth, take it off the spoon, move it around in your mouth. Now take that same spoonful of mashed potatoes and crush up a handful of potato chips and mix it in. Now put that spoonful in your mouth with the potato chips and the mashed potatoes. Which one do you prefer? See, there you go. Speaking of uh, fighting about uh, things, uh, <laughs> the, the, the next question I have is a, a topic in which you two are probably going to fight with me. And that is pineapple on pizza, which I knew where this was going. so i am personally a fan it's not a a must for me but there's a a a food truck in town that has a they call it the polynesian it's it's a it's a a neapolitan style pie with pepperoni pineapple and then uh mozzarella and then the crust is drizzled with hot honey and that combination of flavors the spicy oh it's also got jalapenos on it i almost forgot that so that combination of sweet and spicy and salty I, I really enjoy it, but I realize some people are wrong about this. So go ahead and tell us uh, <laughs> why you're against pineapples. And and look, I got to say, too, I joke a lot about this. Frankly, what you like, you like, and anybody likes, that's that's their own preference. And um, I, I don't want to be a culinary tyrant. However, from a kind of a restaurateur's or a chef's perspective, I find that pineapple pizza is so often messed up. And and it's it, people – think it's binary it's either you you load it or you don't and it is an incredibly delicate flavor with a ton of moisture that can very quickly overwhelm any dish pineapple is one of those ingredients right there's a few of them in the culinary world cumin is another one of them right you know you put cumin in something and bam it's everywhere oregano is another one you just there are those flavors that you have to be very delicate with it gets heated um, and that juice goes right into the pizza. As we know, a good pizza is a nice, crispy, crusty, crusty pizza. Now, if I were to do pineapple pizza, which once again, 
no problem with with it done the right way. I would do small brunoise, like a like a one quarter by one quarter inch dice of pineapple, caramelized, pre sautéed, reduced, and then dolloped in very 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 um, small piles throughout the pizza with a lot of spice. And I like that honey. That sounds great. That would be my iteration. Okay, see, my son loves pineapple on his pizza, and it's one of those things when when um, we order this, he's he always asks for pineapple on his pizza, and I always tell him, no, pineapple doesn't belong on pizza. And so I am with well, you on I am with you on this. Rich is not, but I am with you on this. I'm trying to train him to find other pizza he enjoys because pineapple does not belong on pizza. So you're doing, but you're doing a, a good service to your to your kids. That's good, you're setting them up for success. So what you mentioned about cumin, it, it reminds me. This is funny. This uh, the way the universe is working right now. But my middle daughter. Uh, I have three daughters, and they all uh, are the older two enjoy cooking. And the middle daughter cooks a lot of pancakes. And she was experimenting with pancakes a number of years ago and was trying to make cinnamon pancakes and did not look closely at the spice that she grabbed out of the cabinet and got the cumin. And uh, this is not a dish that I would recommend. Do not put that in your pancakes. <laughs> That's funny. See, there we go, right? You, you could probably – I need to buy that story from you so I can use it in my cumin lore. See, I, I, I had that situation as well. I often like cinnamon in my coffee in the morning. And one morning when I was not awake because I hadn't had my coffee, I grabbed the cumin instead and put it in my coffee and I was so angry the entire rest of the day because I had to throw away that coffee. It's one of those things. You're right. Just to just to dabble, do you? Well, for me, that's the uh, any flavored coffee. I've done that before. Run into Seven Eleven last minute. You know, oh, I've just got to grab some coffee. I need it instantaneously. Accidentally get the hazelnut coffee. Oh, yeah, I understand your feeling. It ruins the day. All right, with uh, you slap fish. You've got uh, also Slapfish Raw Bar, which is, you say is the best oysters that you will ever eat. Now, I am a huge fan of oysters on the half shell. I, honestly, the only way I really want to eat oysters is raw. And nothing against the, you know, Rockefeller or anything like that. I just love that the taste. It's almost like eating a little bit of the ocean. So when you are serving oysters or when we're consuming oysters, what is the ideal setup to get the most of that oyster flavor? I mean, you're going with a little horseradish and lemon, uh, cocktail sauce. What is the best way to eat an oyster? Yeah, and you know, and I would say too, it also depends on the oyster um, because you, you think you you know you can have some bi those big fat eastern oysters that you almost have to chew two or three times through. They're like four inches in diameter. That one I might slap it with like some mignonette just to once again. Uh, amplify the flavor, cut through some of the richness, just add another layer of flavor. But then if I have like a real small teardrop, Kumamoto, maybe a one-inch oyster that's just sweet and delicate and it's got just natural cucumber, oceanic flavor to it, I'm going to take that one straight. Typically for all my oysters, I'll do one just as is to kind of get a feel for it. And then from there, I like to pair it with the condiments. The fun of eating oysters are the hot sauces and the condiments and all the ways in which you can dress it and the preferences that you have. 
or one has eating oysters. So I try not to be uh, a snob or be smug about the ways in which I recommend people eat oysters. But I do at least say, and I suggest, try one just without sauce first to see how you like it and then dress accordingly. Okay, let's go out on this. Um, you have some experience uh, doing appearances in the Food Network. Um, what is it, what's the difference between being a, a chef in your restaurant and a chef on television? Yeah. Well, on television, I have an IFB in my ear and people telling me to make other people cry seems to be the usual. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's like, uh, well, shows I've done have all been very different, but I will say this, I guest judged on Chopped Jr. And it was, I, my co-judge was Meghan Markle. And this was three weeks before she started dating the uh, dating royalty. Um, and it was funny. I always joke. I say I was the most normal person she saw before she entered that world. But uh, we, you know, we judged these kids for like 12 hours. And that was the toughest thing I'd ever done. You can't, you don't yell at them. You're trying to build them up, but then you got to cut them down. And it's easiest to cut when there's four kids. It's easiest to cut the first kid because it's kind of like, well, first round I was cut. Best to cut the kid at the end. That's the worst, right? Because now it's just two and you basically crush this kid's dreams because they think they're going to win. And unfortunately, I was the one who had to do that. So I'll answer your question with that story by saying that it's actually worse than yelling at a bunch of line cooks who are either hungover or stoned. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's a wonderful way to go out. Uh, Chef Andrew Gruel, thank you so much. We appreciate the time today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.